Previously on the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. While the winners may already be home cozy in bed, most of the racers are still out in the elements dealing with a whole host of issues. I think for the wet, we'll just have to get wet and endure. I don't, there's not much we can do about it. There's always stuff that goes, I mean, everybody, everybody has stuff that breaks. Every, every boat, as far as I know, has some little thing that'll break. The atmosphere is just wild. Yeah, there's so much adrenaline. Speaking of finishers, we've seen the first finishers roll in for the 2019 race. Want to hear what they're saying? Curious why given the horns dropped from the front contenders? We'll tell you in the next episode, so join us on June 14th. Welcome back to the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. I'm Angel Mathis, and I'm coming to you from the cold seas off the coast of Alaska. This is a 14-part podcast following the 750-mile race to Alaska created and produced by Boldly Went Productions. This is episode 5 of 14 that chronicles the quest to win $10,000 in a non-motorized, unsupported boat race through the iconic Inside Passage. In the last few episodes, we focused on some of the aspects of this race that helped make it unique to the world. There are so many interesting things going on that you could almost forget that there's an actual race happening. So in this episode, let's remind ourselves why we're all here and get back to the 2019 race itself. The winners are in, the steak knives have been won, and the pack is more than halfway home. The pack will be on the water for weeks, but we know enough now to begin to tell the big picture story of what has actually been happening on the water in this year's race. I have to say it's been a great race to follow, so I want to give you the full story. The race started out by behaving like an immature bully for the entirety of the 36 hours that racers had to complete the first stage proving grounds across the Strait of Juan de Fuca, with 30 to 40 mile per hour winds and strong tides lowering the boom on small craft. Many of the human-powered vessels decided it wasn't safe enough to even attempt the 40 mile crossing, and their race was over before it started. Only one boat without a sail made it under the cutoff, and that was Team Backward AF, which was made up of a couple of experienced rowers. There was another team, Team Oracle, that made it across in a two-person sea kayak without a sail, but they missed the cutoff by, get this, 35 minutes, so we're cut from the race. I'll be sharing their dramatic story, which involves a running portage across a golf course in a future episode, so stay tuned. No one who made the cutoffs fought harder for it than Thor and Pax from Team Funky Dory. We've spoken with them before, and if you've been listening, they're the team in the tiny 16-foot Dory that they literally pulled out of a ditch, bought for $1, and refurbished. Here's their story from the straight. Uh, we, we were tacking to get away from the coho, Yeah, and it, I think our jib sheet got caught on the cleat on the forward part of the mast, and it was 20... We had full sail up just racing to get here right and probably should have had a double reef right, and right. just swamped like that yeah, right in front of that damn boat and yeah. God. sailed mildly terrifying like two foot underwater away from it just like fuck we gotta go holy shit and yeah Jeez. it was a great start <laughs> or a finish or whatever the hell it was 
All right, that's a good precursor. Do you have a second to describe the story? You can even do what you need to do while you're doing it. Can you tell us what happened yesterday on the trip over from Port Townsend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had some strong winds and an ebbing tide against them. Um, so the waves were pretty wild and we just sort of focused really, really hard and just barely made it across. And we're feeling pretty good about ourselves until we got like into the harbor and the wind bottlenecked as we went into the channel and sort of picked up speed and between that and the the coho the ferry over there coming out we had to rush attack basically and we weren't prepared and one of the sheets got caught and we filled with water quicker than either of us really ever thought could happen and then had to sail with the whole boat underwater for i don't know a couple hundred a mile <laughs> i don't know it felt like a mile it wasn't a mile it was 500,000 feet into the <laughs> ferry terminal and then we like tried to tie up to the ladder there because that the wind was originally sort of holding us off the cement but as it was picking up it shifted and funneled into the ferry terminal and blew us up against the cement and then we damaged a few things which is a bummer and we're gonna have to work all day to fix those but we were able to like eventually set an anchor and get out away from the wall and had to come in under under or you talk about this um this swamping which was about a mile out from here right in the cruise terminal and i was actually standing with daniel evans a race boss when that was happening we looked at the tracker and he's like what the hell are they doing in the cruise terminal and then we heard this story later and it, it's much more epic than we would have even guessed but that wasn't even the first time your boat filled with water right this was day two of the race when you were making your way across what yeah. happened day one we had a pretty abysmal first day where we we're just, it's hard to really explain. The boat had been out of the water for some time um, because we were scrambling to get it all ready for this because of a, a bit of an automotive incident. I'm gonna blame it all on that where someone drove into me while I had the boat in tow and it set us back sometime. That's the, the ferry that almost ran us over. Um, it's sounding yeah, it's, right it's there. It's still taunting you. Yes, it's saying hello. But anyway, because of being out of the water for that long, the boat had dried out quite a bit. And when it dries out, an old wooden boat is basically sealed by the moisture in the planks, swelling them together. So we had just basically big holes in our boat, for lack of a better way, cracks in between each of the planks. And every time we would heel over to sail, water would come pouring in. And I think the boat was like, had six inches of water in it almost the whole first day and we made it maybe six miles, not even that, from Port Townsend. And then that night, like we, we had pulled in for repairs a few times that day to try and make it stop leaking so much. And through one of those incidents, we got a rock jammed in the centerboard. And in some ways that was a gift because it forced us to stop for the day and the wind picked up shortly thereafter. So we basically, I guess we got lucky in a way, even though we were unlucky. Um, and we holed up for the night on this really not so ideal camping spot, but got the boat to safety and then just started working on it and took the centerboard case apart and used a piece of driftwood and some line to like pry out the rocks from below because they were wedged. I don't know how they got so wedged. And then what else did we do, Pax? We, oh, we slick seamed the whole boat with this terrible sticky compound that made it so we could get across the strait the next day. 
feel like there's oh we wired a bilge pump the morning before we left i think we left at eight o'clock in the morning after wiring a bilge pump without electrical crimpers using a, a small stone on the jaws of a plier set of pliers to get the right crimp and a lighter to heat shrink it all together and uh yeah i don't know how it worked but that's, that's re remarkable guyver shit man yeah that's amazing and so i don't know if you mentioned this but a lot of us over here were tracking you guys and all of this added up to you guys basically finishing in a photo finish like 20 minutes before five o'clock so 20 minutes before uh disqualification time and there was a crowd of like 100 people here on the yeah, <laughs> on the board people there that's I what i hear growing i couldn't even that's what see I, that's what i hear there's like a big crowd gathered to cheer these guys in so everybody is stoked that you made it Nature can be a real asshole, and by the start of stage two, winds had died down and there were such perfect paddling conditions out of Victoria Harbor that the only remaining rowers, Team Backwards AF, led the race for more than two hours. It was a little bit painful to watch because it highlighted the fact that all of the other human-powered craft were left behind. But at some level, it felt vindicating to see the underdog taking the lead after the small craft horrors of stage one. If we had video of it, we'd back it with a theme from Rocky that plays when he knocks out Apollo Creed. Da 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 You get the point. There were light winds through the first few days of stage two, and the race was on between two trimorans, Team Pear-Shaped and Team Given the Horns, and one monohull, Team Angry Beaver. Johnstone Strait is a notoriously crucial point in the race, a thin channel where tides and wind make or break races and can produce miles of separation between teams. Seymour Narrows, the gateway to Johnstone Strait for racers as they head north, creates a tidal barrier to forward progress no matter the speed of your boat. Peter Gearlofs, captain of Seductress, spelled C-Duck-Tress, one of the media support boats, explains it like this. The tide comes around the north end of the island and around the south end of the island when it's coming up or down and meets right there. At Campbell River. Right south of Campbell River. Right? We're starting to get into it right now. If the tide's really running, this is one of the most interesting. I mean, you just see water swirling because everything from coming from both sides, north and south, come together right here. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing out there is flat water that then leads into this it often rigid, is, rugged. Yes. Well, well, so again, we're approaching a slack, so it's getting really slow. So we'll get some of it, but when it's really running, this is just, you see, pyramids going up in the air and whirlpools and a whirlpool this way and it's really quite dramatic. Mm -hmm. So this in many ways, Seymour Narrows, which we're coming to, and the channel off of Campbell River just south of Seymour Narrows are the strongest currents of the entire race. So it's like, kind of like a gate. And if the current's against you, and it can be at Seymour Narrows, it could be 14 knots, you know, which is like 16 miles an hour against you and you're in a boat with light winds that can only do three miles an hour you're basically going backwards at 13 miles an hour so you have to time it so that it's slack i.e the water's not moving or the water's going with you the challenge is the faster the water is going with you the rougher the water you get all these whirlpools and you know really turbulent water 
which if you don't have a lot of wind and you can't go very fast, you don't have a lot of control in. So you can just be spun around. So the trick is if they go through and with the tide, or if they go through it just at slack, and right after slack, the tide is against them. So they're through it, but now they got the next five miles with, you know, three, four, five knot currents against them. So it's, it really takes a lot of luck and planning to, to time it right. This year, Team Pear Shaped Racing were the first to arrive to the gateway at Seymour Narrows, but they were forced to wait for tides. While waiting, the lead pack was able to catch up to them. The eight lead boats pushed through the narrows together, virtually ensuring one of the tightest races to the finish that R2AK has ever seen. Despite the earlier pear-shaped lead, Team Given the Horns was the first to head into the straight through the narrows. Today is day three of the race to Alaska, depending on how you calculate a day. Last night, Team Given the Horns with Dan, Ian, Alex, and Will were lucky enough to make it through the narrows. We had to sneak up the Campbell River, which was really interesting, using just jib and main, wing on wing, but staying right up against the shore in little back eddies the whole way because of the adverse current. We made it up there and we had about 11 and a half knots of adverse current coming out of Seymour Narrows, so we knew we wouldn't go through that then, but we anchored and decided to get ready for it. We stayed there for about half an hour, 40 minutes, let that tide and current decrease a little bit, and then we were the first boats to try and get through the Narrows, which was awesome. I think as a team, we're really happy to just be pushing the boat and trying to race as, as hard as we can, even if you know you can't control the weather, can't control certain aspects, to be able to be the first ones going into the narrows was, was really exciting. After that, the breeze built quite a bit. We went through the narrows, had a, bit of, had a bit of breeze. The guys on deck, I was not one of them at the time, saw upwards of 35 knots, which necessitated sail changes from the J3 with no reefs to the J3 with two reefs to the main alone with three reefs, 42 knots. And we then shook all those back to a light air setup for a little while, then went back to a heavy air setup in the evening. So a lot of sail changes. And now we're on the backside. Uh, we've made it pretty far along. We're in light air with a little breeze just meeting us now, which is nice. So we're getting quite a bit of current push and I no longer have steerage because it's light air over and out. The nature of using spot tracking to follow a 750 mile unsupported wilderness adventure is that it is, well, spotty. We lost tracking on some boats for hours at a time, and with modern technology breaking down, there were times we had to rely on old-fashioned means of news gathering, checking Facebook updates. That's how we got word from Team Pear-Shaped Racing at 10 a.m. the second morning after leaving Victoria. They had reclaimed the lead and were the first to enter Queen Charlotte Strait as they fought to establish a lead over Given the Horns and Angry Beaver at the halfway point. We had to use ancient mariner techniques to decipher the following dispatch that I'm reading off of their Facebook page. It read, Our tracker isn't working. Off Hanson Island, approaching Telegraph Cove. All is well after a, quote, sporty night. Just behind in the chase pack, a mass of boats entered the Seymour Narrows a few miles behind the three leaders, including Narwhal, Shut Up and Drive, Trickster, Educated Guest, and last year's champion, Sail Like a Girl. Not necessarily in that order. From what we heard, these teams were feeling the intensity of the race. To give you a sense of the experience from the field at Seymour Narrows, here's a field report from Team Shut Up and Drive. All right, we're here on Team Shut Up and Drive with Nat Creo, the skipper and currently helmsman. 
for the team. Helms woman. Helms woman. Thank you. My apologies. Okay, can you fill us in what happened yesterday afternoon once we stopped pedaling? Uh, so once we stopped pedaling, we had a really nice breeze that came up, and it carried us all the way to the tight gate at Simon Arrows. The breeze picked up a lot overnight, which was really good for the Figaro, and it was quite choppy. There was wind over current, so I think it was uh, good for us and bad for other designs. Okay, so that, that breeze we got before Seymour Narrows that carried us there really quickly, were we expecting that? No, we were not really expecting any breeze. Actually, the, the forecast for Seymour Narrows was pretty pretty low, so all we expected was the remnants of the, the thermal of the day. Yeah, but somehow it filled from the south, and we had a great spinnaker run. We did, yep. And then a little acing run. Then we, then we pedaled a little bit, then we went upwind in 18 knots. Then we went upwind in 20, 25 knots. Right, and then we pedaled through Seymour Seymour Narrows, there was literally no way that we pedaled just yeah. to keep steerage, and then it went back to 18, building to 20, Five. and Kelsey Bay, yeah. 25, we had a reef in. So how'd the boat feel? The boat feels good now. We uh, we had to pedal earlier this morning. The, the wind died. I picked up again, but it's pretty pretty low. It's in the six, seven, eight knots. But our CMG, so basically our, our velocity may go to the mark. is still much higher when we sail than when we pedal. So we decided to put the sails back up. Okay, what are you hearing about the future? It, I mean, if you're superstitious and you don't want to talk about the future, that's okay. No, no, I told you, I'm not superstitious since it brings bad luck. So in the future, uh, it looks like it's going to be light or morning, including basically the end of Johnson Strait and then the, the next bit. The wind should then pick up in 10 to 15, maybe teens, which will be good. But the more exciting that we're seeing is in maybe, you know, 24 hours or so, a little bit more, we should have a southwesterly breeze starting to fill. And that would be great for us. And quite big, like 25 to 30 knots. And those are conditions that this boat loves. How's the team doing? What do you think about things? I think the team is good. There was a big, big effort last night in the heavy winds to keep the boat going. A lot of sail changes constantly. And I think the, the team really bonded together and, and did really, really well, including non-sailors. Now everyone is kind of resting and recuperating and I think kept warm. So I'm seeing uh, Jeremiah right now sipping hot tea. So no, I think everything is good here. Yeah, so is it cold? Uh, so it's interesting, it's it's significantly colder than what it was yesterday, even though it was overcast also yesterday. Uh, but yeah, we totally noticed a big drop in temperature. Yeah, well that's what they say when you go through Seymour Narrows, everything drops 10 degrees. The water, the air, yep. your, your feelings. Well, we saw lots of uh, port poises. They were very curious about us when we were pedaling. And then they came back at night when there was very heavy winds. There were a lot of porpoises, that's true. With the bioluminescence trailing off them, it was beautiful. Yeah. Also, you were asleep, but this morning, right before the pedaling, Tongi and Justin and I saw a whale. Oh, nice. Uh, and we got video of the whale. So that was really cool. All right, well, we're just trying to stay ahead of sail like a girl here on the light breeze. They keep catching up, but I don't know how we're doing it. We're doing our best. Check back in later. Might have to call you on the sat phone because we're running out of service. Though I'm not quite clear when they got 4G in the entirety of Johnstone Strait. <laughs> Last time I did this race, we did not have this. All right, shut up and drive out. You want to say bye, Nat? Bye-bye. Peace out. Thanks, Natalie and Satchel. 
As the race boss describes here, the action at the front of the pack was consistently exciting. I'd say the cool thing when you think about the action in general is the constant lead changes that's been going on. Further back in the pack, a sense of meaningless competition started to develop between boats. So we asked racers if they developed any arch nemesis. Without much prompting, Team Whip, a group of young Belgians and Bay Area dirtbags, shouted out the MacGuffin brothers from Team MBG. Yeah, you have somebody you're trying to catch. Do you have like an arch nemesis? <laughs> When we mentioned this to McGuffin Brothers, they seemed to understand why. So uh, Team Whip said you guys were their arch nemesis. So you guys are, uh, how are you feeling about that? You feel like the competition with those guys too? Uh, I feel like we're a little faster than them, but they are close to us. Yeah, I think that that's what they're upset about. <laughs> Members of Team MacGuffin Brothers are barely out of high school. It's okay, Team Whip. I get it. I'd be mad if they were kicking my butt, too. The checkpoints in the race are designed, at least in part, to prevent bigger boats from heading west of Vancouver Island and gaining too big of an advantage on smaller craft. We want the folks in the dinghies to have a good time, too. But the final checkpoint of the race between Ketchikan is Bella Bella. Racers still have about half of the race to go, and this spot is a turning point because it's where the course opens into pure, unadulterated wilderness with few options to access civilization. After this, grizzlies are the main spectators, and if you want to restock on food, you'd better be good at fishing. By this stage on the morning of day three out of Victoria, team pear-shaped racing seemed to be slowly, if not definitively, establishing a lead. Angry Beaver was hanging with them only a few miles back with Sail Like a Girl and Shut Up and Drive absolutely battling it out for third. Given the horns had been in or near the front of the pack for much of the race, but we noticed them drop off in the race trackers. Here's their field update describing why. We've got Will Sudo here for a fireside chat. Will, tell us about the last few hours on Team Giving the Horns on Triceratops. It's been a pretty exciting day. We pedaled pretty much all night, more or less nonstop on the bikes. And then come morning, we had a building southerly breeze. So we were going downwind, trying to figure out how to get over into Fitzhugh Sound and the Llama Passage to get to Bella Bella saw some good wildlife we were surprised to come up on a whale a little bit closer than we wanted to be i think if you were sitting on the ama you could have touched it so that was cool to see i think he was as surprised to see us as we were to see him and then we were going downwind full main and the spinnaker up surfing down waves things were going pretty well we were approaching our passage into llama passage and dan was on the helm and suddenly he said he had no helm and looked back and the rudder had snapped 90 degrees sideways, sheared off right at the bottom of the rudder cassette. Uh, luckily it was still attached by one of the skins. It was a little bit hairball because we had big sails up and once the rudder went, we rounded up. So we were pointed straight into the wind with the spinnaker and the mainsail flogging. Everybody responded really nicely and kept calm. We got the spinnaker down, then we got the main down and went right away into sorting it out. Dan did a great job on comms with the Coast Guard, keeping them updated on our status and what we were doing. 
we pulled the broken section of rudder out of the water, chopped it off with a saw where it had broken, and then used the bottom part of the rudder that had broken off and drilled some holes so that we could fit that broken piece into the rudder cassette and have steerage. And luckily it all went pretty well. All things considered, we were in a pretty good time and place for that particular incident to happen. There's other places on this course where that could have been really, really dangerous. So we feel fortunate in that respect. And our improvised rudder is working well enough to get us to Bella Bella, where we're going to try to effect further repairs. And we'd really like to see this race all the way through. Despite the disaster that knocked them out of the race at the front, we were excited to hear this follow-up message shortly after. Will, can you uh, tell us a very short recap of the day and what our plan is for tomorrow? So today on Team Given the Horns, we were en route to the second checkpoint in Bella Bella. And long story short is we broke our rudder, effectively disabling the boat. We managed to salvage a broken piece of the rudder, jury-rig it into the rudder cassette, and sail into Bella Bella. And we've stopped here at the Shearwater Marina. It's an incredible area, very beautiful. We're basically in a well-protected bay ringed by forests. There's waterfalls coming down on the hills, massive tall pine trees, bald eagles everywhere, giant marine mammals. It's a really beautiful place. It's gray, dreary, and raining currently. And we asked a local when the rain was forecasted to stop. He told us September. And we have been trying to figure out what to do in order to finish this race because we really don't want to throw in the towel. We want to get to catch a can and see this thing through. But we need a rudder. So we looked at a couple different options. We thought about fixing our broken rudder we also thought about trying to source an existing rudder and get it here to Bella Bella and install it on the boat. And we also thought about building a new rudder. And it's been incredible the amount of support that we've received immediately upon hitting the dock. Pretty much everyone we met already knew about our situation before us even telling them about it, which was really cool. I think it kind of shows the backing and the support that this race gets. And we went round and round with a couple different options and we we reached out to our our network of people that we know and we literally had people from all over the u.s and canada offering to help we had a guy offering to build a rudder overnight for us we had airline pilots offering to transport rudders for free literally the most kind offers people really want us to see this thing through but we did a little soul searching and we decided that the reason that we entered this race was to test our own metal and to see if we could be self-reliant in this beautiful wilderness and accomplish this task so we're gonna try to see this thing through on our own which we're gonna do by building a rudder here in Bella Bella using available local materials in this small town so we're hoping that tomorrow we're going to wake up we're going to find some plywood we're going to laminate together some plywood sheets we're going to use the existing broken rudder to trace out a profile cut the laminated plywood shape it glass it drill a couple holes and see if we can sail to catch a can with basically a plywood rudder that we build with our own hands tomorrow seems that maybe uh running for the top places are gone is there any sort of goal that you're interested in trying to achieve timing wise? We just want to finish the race mostly, but uh, 
supposedly there's going to be an epic party in Ketchikan on Friday night. And a lot of our friends are going to be there and a lot of people that have really supported us along the way. So if we could make it to Ketchikan by Friday evening, we would, we would be stoked. From the front of the pack to the back, this race is unforgiving. But the fact that they rigged a solution to continue, well, we think that's what this race is all about. At the time of this recording, we just met up with them to see them finish up their plywood rudder, and they were heading out on their way to go for a finish, and we are freaking loving that. Meanwhile, in the back of the pack, R2 Ake was in last place. If you've been listening, you might remember them as the father-son duo who hooked a homemade paddle wheel to the back of their 26-foot McGregor. Well... To add to their drama, they took a late start so one of their members could fly to the East Coast to receive his PhD. And by the time the leaders were hitting the halfway point, they were just starting their journey a couple hours north of Victoria. They started the race two days late, creating some nice drama around the question of whether the race is long enough to take time off to pursue a doctorate and still beat the grim sweeper. The answer remains to be seen at the time of recording this. By mid-afternoon on the third day out of Victoria, when the leaders were beginning their final long push towards Ketchikan, the only human-powered craft, Backward AF, had cruised steadily to 150 nautical miles. Some of our favorite tiny boat protagonists, Funky Dory, were at mile 110, and Hobie One Kenobi was at mile 120. Remarkable work by the little guys. Back to the story at the front of the pack on the fourth day of the race. While racers were closing in on Ketchikan, the media boat was motoring north into a magical land where the internet doesn't exist and cell phones are only good for scrolling through old pictures reminiscing about the good old days when you could get race updates instantaneously. It was great in a lot of ways, but it meant that tracking the race was tricky. Even if we'd been next to a cell tower, the front runner, pear-shaped racing's tracker, hadn't been working for days anyway, and Team Angry Beaver, who'd been running in second, were having intermittent issues as well. So even as race staff, we simply weren't clear about who was winning, which makes things way more interesting. We did receive a few intermittent direct updates from scouts ahead that would ping through on the phone when we got service or Wi-Fi access, and they delivered intriguing hints about how things might be going. It was enough to create an air of suspense, but not to paint a clear picture of which of the two boats would finish first. Initially, on the afternoon of June 10th, on the fourth day out of Victoria, we got a message indicating that at 6 a.m., Team Angry Beaver had been 70 miles out from Ketchikan, moving at 9 to 10 knots. Shortly after, we got a message that at 8 a.m., pear-shaped racing seemed to be 90 miles out, sailing at 10 knots, which seemed to indicate that Angry Beaver had taken a significant lead. But then, moments after, we heard that at 9.30, pear-shaped were 60 miles out, doing 18 knots. Winds frequently die out a few miles out from Ketchikan. We hadn't heard anything definitive about where pear-shaped was in relation to Angry Beaver, and there was still some uncertainty about who would win the steak knives and who would get stuck with the 10,000 consolation prize. The race and film boss were furiously attempting to get text through on pirated data off a remote island when we finally got word that Team Angry Beaver 
after having run in second behind pear-shaped racing for much of the race, had pulled out the wind and reached Ketchikan at 2.56 p.m. Alaska time, winning the race. Team pear-shaped racing came in a few hours later at 5.23 p.m. The race for the win in 2019 was one of the closest in R2AK history. It made for some really exciting, futile attempts at internet refreshing on the media boat, and for all of the tracker junkies out there who had no idea whether pear-shaped racing was actually still on course when their spot stopped working. I'm almost sure it was even more exciting for the actual racers. As I'm recording this, we are still off the coast of wild Alaska in a remote spot with no cell service or Wi-Fi, so my ability to provide in-person commentary is limited. It's our commitment though to figure out how to track down Team Angry Beaver and find out what they're going to do with all of that cash and to track down Pear Shaped and ask if I can borrow a knife. In the meantime, we'll spend our time speculating and spreading baseless rumors about what led to the win like everyone else. All joking aside, sincere congratulations to Mots and the crew of Team Angry Beaver. They managed to pull out a win in a monohull Shock 40 against a fast custom Chris Cochran Trimaran crewed by a team of world-class experienced sailors. Their win this year was genuinely remarkable, which I learned when the race officials we were sitting with when we found out about their win said, that's genuinely remarkable when they heard that they had won. We talked with Mots in the first episode of this podcast and we'll talk to him again but we want to brag on him and his team a bit here because this is just another feather in the cap for a team full of national champions, Olympians, national team members, savvy vets, and up-and-comers. They're a crazy impressive crew and they pulled out a win against a fast boat with a similarly impressive resume who by all accounts gave everything they had. A few hours after the winners, other racers in the lead pack started trickling in. Congratulations to Shut Up and Drive, who we heard from earlier at Seymour Narrows and who finished in third place, and to last year's champion, Sail Like a Girl, who came in fourth. Congratulations to everyone who has finished so far, and keep up the good work, everyone who's still out there. Your grit is so inspiring. Boats will be out on course for weeks, so even though winners are in, the story of the race is really just starting. Keep listening. That's it for today's R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. Thanks for sharing the adventure with us. Have you ever wondered who's behind the scenes with the race staff, crew, and super fans? Or who's sharing a dark secret about the anonymous collective that produces the race's justifiably famous written media? More on that next time. Huge thanks to Race to Alaska for bringing this crazy adventure into the world and all the crazy adventurers who are trying it and who are fodder for this podcast. Other thanks for this podcast are attributed to Uncruise, Northwest Maritime Center, Michaela Elias, audio editor and production assistant, Tim Mathis, lead writer, Given the Horns, Funky Dory, Peter Gearloffs, Angry Beaver, Educated Guests, Shut Up and Drive, Daniel Evans, The MacGuffin Brothers, Whip, episode production by Boldly Went. Also, too, 
leaf changes, internet dead zones, triangles on your computer screen, triangles that should be on your computer screen but aren't, bad weather, good weather, Port Townsend, Ketchikan, and congratulations to Team Angry Beaver. If you're still listening, thanks. Get all the daily details about the race to Alaska at r2ak.com. Get additional R2AK content and reporting from our website or link to the regular weekly Boldly Went podcast featuring the brief and true adventure stories by outdoorists of all kinds at boldlywentadventures.com. Follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Race to Alaska and at Boldly Went Adventures. I'm Angel Mathis. Proudly bringing you this podcast from the finish line in Ketchikan with the race to Alaska. Ignite your adventure.